Romans chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verse 17, 18, and 20 today. Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 17. This, the title of this message is People Who Divide Churches. Start reading verse 17. I urge you, brothers, to note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Skip over verse 19 and we'll go to verse 20. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. In verse 17 he starts by drawing your attention. He has just ended verse 16 of this greeting by saying, uh, greet one another with a holy kiss. And so he has just encouraged the church to love on each other. Uh, so much so that when you greet one another, do so with a holy kiss. And it's almost as if while he was saying that, some other people of the church came to mind. Some other people who were not as pure, perhaps. And so he, he now says, now I urge you. Some of your versions say, I beseech you. It's a, it's a call to action. He's trying to draw your attention in verse 17, especially to the brothers. And he says, in my version, it says to note those with the more proper word is to mark those, to mark them, to see them, to notice them, and to mark who they are. Uh, when I was a younger preacher, uh, I was not even expecting there to be anybody in the church who, uh, who you'd be aware of. Uh, you know, you come into the church, you get saved, and then the, early on the Lord called me to preach, and I start preaching pretty early. I believe the first funeral I ever preached was the first funeral I ever went to. I think the first wedding, uh, I had my wedding, and then I think the first wedding I ever officiated was probably the second. Uh, not many weddings had I been to. You, you could tell by the way, I, the way I performed them back then. But to think of people in the church causing divisions and offenses and teaching false doctrine, I, I didn't expect that. And when you see it, when you didn't expect it, it catches you off guard and you're, you're not prepared for it. And then as I begin to experience it as a young minister, uh, you pretty quickly know who those people are, especially if you're in the church leadership, if you're an elder uh, you or a pastor, you would know those who are trying to get positions to be able to teach and they have a platform that they want to use to teach something that's not found in Scripture, something else. Uh, it has a mixture of Scripture, but it's not true. It's false doctrine. And so even knowing who those people are, then uh, you just learn, uh, or I just learned to be, be aware of them, you know, try to uh, not give them so many opportunities to teach or to preach, but be aware of them. But I learned as I got older and uh, grew as a minister that it is, more appropriate, even biblical, to mark them. That's the word used here in Scripture, to mark them, to make it known who they are. Let me ask you, if you mark somebody, would that, would that mean you'd call their name? Just think about that for a minute. Does that mean you'd call their name? 
I think there are rare occasions, very rare occasions, where you would call their name publicly. I think there is a place, if I was in, in leadership of a particular service, let's say it was at our church, and someone was preaching, and they preached something that was in, not in agreement with Scripture, I think in that case it would be a responsibility on me or an elder of this church to stand and call that out of order and to, to uh, on the spot, publicly declare that as false. And that's not what the Bible says. I think if we're at another church and I were attending, although I would want to stand up and say something, it, it may not be my place. I'm not sure. I think that would be a case by case. There was a funeral one time where I was attending and the, uh, the preacher there, some of you may know him, he preached this man into heaven and he was far from somebody who lived like a Christian or, or cared about the things of God at all. And my wife was literally holding me down in the chair that day. I had already, I believe the Lord had already given me what to say, the compassion to say it. My eyes was full of tears, uh, but I didn't, I didn't get to say it. It's her fault. She wouldn't let me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you're to mark them. So do you call their name? Rarely would you call their name publicly. But privately, I see no wrong in calling their name privately. Perhaps it's even right. There's a young lady in our community right now who Cindy and I have counseled three couples that this young lady's divorced. She has befriended three different couples who soon after making friendship with her, they got divorced. You follow what I'm saying? In our community, She's divorced, and three different couples we've now counseled, her influence in their life has, I'm not putting all the blame on her, but a sufficient amount. They soon after her friendship get divorced, and I think she's doing things, saying things like, you shouldn't have to put up with that, he shouldn't treat you that way, on and on and on you can go, and just feeding that in. The first couple, we did not call her name, you better believe now when we find out she's befriended a married couple, we call her name and we say that she's a Jezebel, she's not of the Lord, and she's bearing destruction in this community. And I believe that is right. I think it's the thing to do. And I unreservedly call her name. And if she makes friends with one of you as a couple, we'll come to you and we'll call her name to you. I think it's right. I think that's what this passage is saying. Mark those who are, look what it says, two things. First of all, it says who are causing divisions. They're dividing the church. They're coming into the church, and in some possibility or some way, they're separating people, causing one member to come against another, causing uh, one member to dislike and even hate another and to come against each other. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, If it be possible... As much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Romans 14, 1 said to, to bear with the weaknesses of the weak and do not have doubtful disputes with them. You remember that when we were studying that? There is an old cliche that says it takes two to argue. That's not true. It doesn't take two to argue. It takes one to spread division. And they can cause an argument between the best of friends. It takes one to plant seeds of division. 
It says in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 14, they devise mischief continually and they sow discord. They go around planting discord, causing one person to dislike another, one person to think ill of another. And so he's saying, mark those people who are causing divisions in the church. And then the second thing he says in verse 17, and who cause offenses. They cause offenses. The word offenses here is the Greek word scandalon. It's where we get our word for scandal. It literally means to set a trap. It's like the old cartoon. It has the, the stick, you know, and it holds the trap up, and you put the, the, the bait underneath the stick, and when the bird comes in or the rabbit comes in, you pull the string, and it falls. That's what this word means. They're setting traps for people and causing them to stumble. Uh, sometimes this word is even translated sinful. They cause certain people to do things that are wrong and commit sins. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. And so there are a group of people who will come into the church, and they'll cause divisions, and they'll cause offenses, and he says to mark them. The third thing he says in verse 17, he says, they teach contrary to the doctrine which you learned. They teach things contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. And so that's where I'm stating that they are false teachers. They are people who teach something different than what the Bible says. It will be seasoned with the Bible and words from the Bible, but it will not be the truth of the Bible. And so he says, mark them. And then the second thing he says is in the end of verse 17, he says, and avoid them. You mark them, I believe that's in some cases, at least privately calling them by name, but then you're called upon to avoid them. That's a very specific command. He does not say to argue with them. He does not say to debate with them. He does not even say to correct them. He says avoid them. Avoid them. Look at verse 18. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. So they who are such is like saying those people who are like this. They do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. The words do not is like saying not twice. It's not not in the original language. It means literally cannot. Cannot would be a better translation. They cannot serve our Lord Jesus Christ. The word serve is where we get our word for slave. It means to be in bondage, to be come under them in slavery. In other words, he calls Jesus here our Lord, and that's fitting that he does so. He is our Lord. He is over us, and we are his servant. He is in charge of our lives. He's in charge of what we do and where we go and what we say. He is our Lord, Jesus Christ. And he says here... Uh, subtly, he says here, they're not saved. Do you see that? If they do not serve or they're not a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you answer me this question. Are they saved? No, they're not saved. If Jesus is not their Lord, then they are not saved. And so these people who would come into the church 
cause divisions, cause offenses, and teach contrary to the doctrines of God, they are not saved. They do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look what he goes on and say in verse 18. But they do serve their own belly. They don't serve our Lord Jesus Christ. They serve their own belly. I like a lot of people when they talk about their belly, they like to rear back and poke it out real far, you know, and, and, and slap their, their stomach. The word belly here is, uh, can be translated appetite. It means what they want. It means that they serve themselves rather than Jesus. They are self-serving. If they don't serve Jesus, then they serve themselves. And, and they want what they want. There, there can be and there will be men who come into the church of the Lord who do not serve Jesus but serve themselves. They will acquire positions to teach. They will acquire positions to lead music. They will acquire positions to keep nurseries. They will acquire positions to pastor and to preach. And they, were, and they are not doing it for God, nor for the Lord Jesus, but for themselves. And that's why he so strongly states here, I believe, they are not saved, and you're to avoid them. Their God is their belly. They do favor themselves, and it's for their glory and not God's glory. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 says, Traitors, heady, high-minded lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Forward your notes in verse 18. They do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly, and they, by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. So, number four in your notes, they deceive the hearts of the simple by what they say. Notice they deceive them. The word deceive means to cheat or to steal. It means to take their hearts and twist the truth inside their hearts. It's what the devil did to Adam and Eve in the garden in 1 Timothy 2.14. It says that the woman being deceived fell into transgressions. The devil came in and he used God's words that God had said to Adam and Eve and he twisted them and caused Eve to be tempted and to fall into sin. These kind of people who come in to deceive, notice it says the hearts of the simple. Who are the simple? It's the immature, it's the innocent, it's the young in the faith, the new Christians, those who don't know the word very well. It's why in a lot of churches that they're not organized as we are, where we are organized more where our families stay together. In a lot of churches where they separate the family and you have the young people in one group and they're getting taught and the teenagers in another group and they're getting taught. A lot of times these type of individuals will want to be a teacher uh, among one of those younger groups so they can deceive the simple-minded. These are the kind of people who, when they come into a church, their effort is to desire to teach, but not so they can give glory to God, but so they can grow their own circle of influence. So they can gain a circle of power in a church. These people are very capable to deceive. 
and disrupt the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, look what it says in verse 18, how they do this. They, they deceive the simple, it says, first of all, with smooth words. By smooth words. They're good at what they do. The word smooth means attractive words, kind words, pleasant words. It seems so good. It goes down so smooth. These type of people are better than used car salesmen. Forgive me if I'm speaking to a used car salesman today. But most people who are used car salesmen, you've got to admit, you're good at your job. You do what you do well. But imagine a person who's a very persuasive person, a person, have you ever known anybody like this, who can get you to do things that you might not necessarily want to do? Imagine that kind of person then coming into the church and on top of that using Bible words and Bible vocabulary and church vocabulary. The power that they have, if they can be really tactful and smooth in that kind of language, the power they can have to deceive the simple. There's smooth words. It goes on in verse 18. He says, by flattering speech. They flatter you with their speech. If you want to make a note in your Bibles out beside this word flattery in verse 18, it's literally the word eulogy. That's the Greek word, eulogy. You know what a eulogy is. You've been to funerals before. The eulogy, I didn't know this when I started pastoring. I didn't know it for many years, actually. But the eulogy is the part of the message that's supposed to flatter the dead person in the casket. Did you know that? It's, it's to be separated. There was supposed to be a, a, a eulogy, a part about the person who died that was flattery, and then another part about Jesus to bring comfort to the family. As a young minister, I, I rarely preached any part of the eulogy, and I still don't do very much. And if I don't know them, or they're not a very nice person, I skip the eulogy altogether. I, I don't even say a word about them. I've done many, many funerals where I don't say a word about the person. I just preach a message on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, because that's the only thing that can bring hope in a desperate time of death. You, you've, you've seen the eulogies. You've heard the eulogies. You go to a funeral and you leave there and you think, wow, I didn't know that guy was such a great guy. Right? They flattered him. They brought out all of his best attributes, and all of his best was displayed, even though you might have known him to be far different from that. This kind of deceptive person who comes into the church, one of the ways you'll notice them is they will flatter you. They'll tell you how great you are. They'll make you feel good about you. And their teaching, their teaching, when you finish their teaching and you walk away from that class or that message, here's the result. You will feel better about yourself. I don't know about you, but the best preaching I've ever heard made me feel pretty bad about myself. Then it made me feel pretty great about my Lord. And then it proved to me that my great God accepted sorry me and made me okay in his presence. And it made me leave saying, God is great. God is great. They'll deceive the simple by smooth words and flattery speech. Now let's get down to verse 20. He says, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. 
God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. I want you to understand that when we study this few verses here about those who would cause division in the church, this attack on the church that we're speaking of here comes directly from the devil himself. It is the devil's intention to come into the church, especially a good church, especially a church that teaches the Bible and teaches the truth of the Word of God and has lots of saved people there. It is his desire to come into that particular church and cause division and discouragement and separation. It is the devil's work. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And especially does he chase after churches that are serving him well. Churches that are being what God called them to be as the beautiful bride of Christ. The devil hates those and comes after them with his greatest attempts of destruction. He's like a roaring lion chasing and seeking who he can destroy. If you were to ask me, does this kind of thing make me angry? You better believe it does. If you've watched a church go through this kind of division and, and, and separation and disunity and backbiting and all that goes into a church that's going through this kind of turmoil, it's so destructive, it, it only destroys that church and many families in that church. It destroys the name of our Lord and the community, many times harming the name of God in a community for some time, maybe even for a generation. The devil is kicked back feeling good about what he's done. It says here, God will crush him. That means to break into pieces. He will utterly destroy the devil. Notice the contrast here. The God of peace, look at it. The God of peace will crush Satan. You see the contrast? Our God who's full of peace, he's the Savior. He's the one who loves you when you are yet in your sins. That God of peace He'll destroy Satan. He'll crush him. He'll crush the devil. It, it includes the word shortly. It means quickly, suddenly. It hasn't happened yet. You say, when does this happen? This happens at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, at the resurrection. In that moment when Jesus comes back, that's the moment he will quickly crush the devil under your feet. And so I want you to be clear on this. People who are teaching falsely, not only are they wicked and selfish and serving their own desires in their belly, they're unsaved and they're of the devil. The devil has sent them. I just want to give you a further confirmation that they are evil from James chapter 3. Verse 15 and 16, it says, This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envy and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Somebody's listening to this message and you're going to a church now where there is confusion 
and dissension and division and fussing and arguing and strife, that is an evil work. It is a work from the devil, and it is the one particular valid reason why I believe it would be okay to leave a church. You will rarely hear me say something like that. If you know me very well, you'll rarely hear me say something like that. It's the one particular reason why I believe it would be all right to leave a church if the preaching and the teaching of that church is false and not in agreement with Scripture, then perhaps you would need to find a different place to attend. I'll just make one closing statement about that. The Holy Spirit of God unifies. The devil divides. The Holy Spirit of God, and we see this happening in our church, takes the city man and the farmer man who have nothing in common. And by the grace of God, when they get saved, the Holy Spirit of God bonds those people together and they love each other. The Holy Spirit of God takes the man from one race or one nationality and the man from another race and another nationality and under the Spirit of God, because they're saved by Jesus Christ, they love each other. May not have much in common, but they got Jesus in common. They love each other. I could go on and on. The rich and the poor. I can go on and on. He brings them together and they love each other. The Holy Spirit unites. The devil divides. Let's go into application real quickly. I have four, four points. Number one, the early disciples feared bad teaching more than they feared being a martyr. You know what being a martyr means? It means to die because you serve Jesus Christ. Because you serve Jesus, they kill you. And the young early apostles and early churchmen of the Bible days, they, many of them were martyred. You know this, right? They were killed. Still some people in, in the world are being killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. But they were more fearful of bad teaching in the church than being a martyr. You say, explain that. I give you a verse here, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 says, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, when you get martyred, if you die because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't really die. You're going to be in heaven. You actually, it just expedites everything. You with me? But if bad teaching comes into the church and they're teaching a way of salvation that is not the way of salvation, then when you die, you die. You see the danger? It's, it's so much worse to have bad teaching than causing people to miss salvation. Number two, I just reiterate, you are to mark them. This letter is... In Romans, is not just written to elders, it's written to the church. And so I'm calling upon you to be aware, as a churchman, as a church member, you're, you're to be aware of what people are teaching and to mark them. Even if, in some cases, it means to call them by name. Number three, avoid them. Once they are known, I would no longer sit under their teaching. I would not listen to their teaching. I would not go to their teaching. I would not go to their class or whatever the case may be. Recognize they do not serve Jesus as Lord. They are not saved. They are of the devil. And avoid them. You say,
say, what does that mean for us as a church? It means as a church, if we recognize somebody like that, hopefully we would not allow them to teach here. And I say this with all humility. We would not desire them to attend here. So that sounds really harsh. Not in the context of this scripture. We would not desire them to attend here. And then for point number four, I want to go back to uh, verse 20. He, he concludes all this. He's just said the God of peace is going to crush Satan under your feet quickly. And then he ends it with this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Why would he throw that in? He's just stated something so harsh. And he concludes with this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. I think one of the reasons that he would include this here is because many times when there is false teaching, the subject of that false teaching is in opposition to grace. And you may not have realized that even before you came to our church. You, you may go from our church now. I'm not saying we're better than anybody else. I'm just saying we preach grace here. It's the biblical thing to preach. And you may go to a church now and sit and hear a message and say, this is not grace. And it will, it will, it will stir something up in you. And it, 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 it'll be calling upon you to have all this urgency to do something to get the favor of God. And, and hopefully you're learning from here. You don't do something to get the favor of God. He gives it to you through Jesus Christ. And so it's often this Subject, the subject of grace that is taught wrongly or taught against. And so I want to conclude by just giving you a little small sermon on grace, if I can. First, I'm going to start with 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. When Paul is talking to Timothy, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What he's saying to Timothy is this. He's saying... Plant your feet and get strong. What do you want me to be strong in? Get strong in knowing the grace of Jesus Christ. Now the grace is the favor of God upon your life. It means that God takes you in as a sinner and he loves you and he pays for all your sins and cleanses you and makes you righteous and makes you holy and now you're a part of his family and now you're a part of him and he, he wraps his arms around you and you're under his grace, his favor. His pleasure. He's pleased with you. And what he's saying to Timothy is, be strong in this. If you're going to be strong in something, if you're going to know something, you know this. The grace of God is on your life. If I were to get you along as a man and say, sir, is the favor of God on you? Is the favor of God on your business? Is the favor of God on your family? Is the favor of God on your marriage? Any one of you might answer me in different ways, and you would answer me circumstantially based on what's happening circumstantially in your life. That's not the way you answer that question. You answer that question based on what Almighty God did for you on the cross through His Son, Jesus Christ. He went there to pay the price for every debt you ever owed and every wrong you'd ever done so that He could position you in a place of grace under His pleasure and under His favor for the glory of God. Not for your glory. So if I were to ask you, sir, is the favor of God upon you? The answer better be yes, by Jesus' grace. His favor is on me. I want to give you a, a passage, and I give you this for a particular reason. There's a lot of people in our churches today that believe in grace up, and, 
to the point they got saved. In other words, God is capable of forgiving me of my past sins. But some of those same people have a problem believing that God is forgiving you today and you're still under His grace because of what you did yesterday that's so wrong. Does that even make sense? Do you have the capacity to believe that God is restoring you and re renewing His pleasure upon you day by day as you live and war with sin for the rest of your life? And we preached this a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 15, I mean chapter 5. Maybe it's more like a few months ago. I'm just going to read through it and preach a little bit as we go. If you'll look with me. But the free gift, it's free, by the way, is not like the offense. He's here comparing the, the sin of Adam with the, the death of Jesus on the cross. He says, if by one man's offense many died, that's through Adam, many died. And he, he repeats these words often here, much more. And he's saying, here's, here's Adam and what he did, and here's Jesus and what he did, and Jesus is much more. He says, if one man's offense, one man's sin caused people to die, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus, abounded to many. You get the difference here? Under Adam, how many, how many sins did Adam commit? One sin. How many sins have you committed? Much more than one, right? It took one to get you to be a part of the sinful part, the fallen nature. But you've got a lot of sins, a pile of sins. We could pile them up, hundreds of them, some of you thousands of them, some of you millions or billions of them. And he says, much more did the grace abound through Jesus Christ. He's comparing sins. Through Adam, one sin and you fail and you're going to die one day. Through Jesus, he takes all your sins to the cross. And much more does grace abound. You get it? Let's go on. And the gift is not like the, that which came through the one who sinned. For judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. He says one sin, one sin, one offense resulted in condemnation. One sin under Adam, you're condemned. What does that mean? You're judged. You go to hell. But he says, but the free gift and you have many offenses, many sins. And the result is, through Jesus Christ, justification. You know, I preached a whole message on that word when we were going through that. Do you remember? Justification. Just like you've never sinned. You're, you're so cleansed. You're so washed. Your sins are so removed. Now you stand in the court of God before the holy God, and he finds no fault with you. You're justified before him. Let's read on. For by one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Here's, here's comparing death and life. The one sin in Adam, death reigned. All your life, death is chasing you. Death is chasing you today. You could die today. You're getting older today. You're getting gray. You're getting bald. Death is chasing you because of one sin. He says much more because of the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness that God gave you. Life now reigns in you through Jesus Christ. You're alive now. The Bible talks about it as a rivers of living water flowing out of you. Remember I preached a message on that. How you're so filled with life now through Jesus Christ. It's like life gushes out of you now. You're overflowing with life. 
And you're going to live forever in eternity with the Lord on high. That's grace. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteousness, righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification. Whereas by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Here's the comparison there. As much as you chased after sin before Jesus God's doing a work in you that's going to make you chase after righteousness now by grace. You, you, you don't believe that's grace? <laughs> Do you know you? Oh, that's a big part of grace right there. As much as you chased after sin before Jesus, do you remember that? You chased it every morning. It was what you lived for. Every day, it's what you lived for. But now you get saved, and by grace, you come under the favor of God, and now it's going to cause you to chase after righteousness. You want to live for God. The, the, the Christians who are true Christians, here's one of the ways you know. You want to live for God. You want your life to count for God. You want to be righteous for God. Why? Because of grace. Because of what He's done in you. Many are made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Well, there was a lot of sin. There's a whole lot more grace. It abounded much more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me give you a picture of the false teaching that will come. It would be this simple. You'd go away from that message or that teaching feeling like this. I'm not good enough. I don't do enough. I've not earned enough. How can God love me? I've got to do more, be better, work harder if God's ever going to love me. And that right there is in contrast of the cross of Jesus, and it comes from hell. Jesus came to save you and give his life for you on the cross so that you could know. Did you notice how many times in that verse it said the free gift? You could know that you don't earn salvation. You don't work for salvation. God gives you that salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he pours out his grace on you. His favor on you. As God found favor with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He now finds favor with me. And favor with you. And there's nothing bad that you have done. Or bad that you can do. That's going to mess up the cross of Jesus Christ. That's grace. And if you don't believe that's the truth, then don't, don't miss the last word of Romans chapter 16, verse 20. He says, Amen. He says, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Do you know that the word Amen is one of the most remarkable words in all languages? In all the languages together. Because the word amen is translated as amen in Greek, in Hebrew, in Latin, in English. I don't know of a language where it's not translated as amen. In other words, all words have a different translation in another language. You, you follow me? But not amen. It's, it's everywhere known as amen. And it means to believe the truth. It means, literally, I've told you this before, it means to say, that's the truth. If you're saying amen, it's like you're saying, 
That's the truth. You're reiterating what has just been said and saying, I believe it, I know it, I've experienced it. That's the truth. And he ends this statement about false teaching, and he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. That's the truth. That's the truth that's to be taught. That's the truth that's to be preached. And that's the truth we're to stand on when the vision comes. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? I want us to pray specifically for our church for just a moment if you would join with me. Father, would you protect our church from heresy, from false teaching, and from those who would undermine the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let this be a place that teaches the truth of the Word of God for the glory of God to the day that Jesus returns. Father, protect this place generation after generation. Protect our families. Lord, there's a lot of heresy being taught, being spread around in this old world. A lot of lies. And we can't even get science right anymore, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would guard us from mishandling the truth of the Word of God. Help the men of this church to have boldness, to have courage, and to be teachers of the truth, especially to their own families, until Jesus returns. Father, we pray that you would put a hedge of protection around this church and protect us from the works of the devil that would send divisive, destructive people here to do harm. We praise you, Father, that you've made this church a place of love, a place where people love each other and care about each other. I pray in Jesus' name that you would protect that spirit of unity, that your spirit would be present here, and we would grow in that spirit of love for each other until Jesus returns. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're just staying with us.